I would like to call your attention this evening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 will be our text this evening. Our text tonight has been called The Greatest Short Story Ever Told. That's because it's the greatest story, the greatest storyteller ever told. The greatest storyteller being Jesus. He taught in many parables, and this is the greatest parable that he ever told. We'll be reading it now, Luke 15. If you're you're having trouble finding it, it's between the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John, and then it's right in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15. Our story is from verse 11 to verse 32, but... I want to read verse 1 and 2 to give us some context, and then we'll go to verse 11. So you'll have to be on your (laughs) A-game. So, all right, Luke 15, starting in verse 1, this is the word of the living God. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners And eats with them. Then down to verse 11. And he said, A man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the young, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate, living recklessly. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him, or no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will rise up and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he rose up and came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slave, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf slaughter it and let's eat and let's celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field and when he came and he approached the house, he heard music and dancing and he summoned one of the servants and he began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the, but he became angry and was not wanting to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and he said to his father, 
Look, for so many years, I have been serving you and never, and I neglect, never have I neglected your commands. And yet never have you given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes and you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, child, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and is alive and was lost and has been found. This is the word of the living God. Our text tonight is the sum and substance of the gospel in 21 verses. It's the entire Bible in one story. The Bible is the story of God's children trying to live on their own terms. In the Garden of Eden, what happened to Adam and Eve? They saw forbidden fruit tempted by the devil, and they took that fruit and they walked away from God. They were banished east of Eden. They went away. Romans 1.24 tells us that God gave them over to their lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored. They were banished from the garden. They went to a faraway place where God was not. And in that faraway place, they gave vent to all their lusts, all their desires. And we, like our first parents, are far from God. We are born sinners far from God. But God didn't just leave us far away from him. The God veiled himself in human flesh. Jesus took on flesh and that Christ, our Messiah, died in our place. As the song goes, come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory Grace unmeasured, love untold. If you're a Christian here tonight, the gospel message is this. You were guilty before God. You stood condemned in your sins, but because of Christ, the perfect spotless lamb of God, you were saved and you have been brought into joyous fellowship with God. You have been saved. You are currently being sanctified and made more into the image of Christ day by day. And ultimately one day you will be glorified and you will dwell back in the presence of God forever. Amen. That's good news. It's good. It's good. Revelation 21, three and four says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among us and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things are 
passed away. The essence of being a Christian is someone whose sins have been forgiven and is on their way to the new Jerusalem where there is no more death, where there is no more pain, no more suffering, just an eternity with God and fellowship with others. And Jesus fits all that into 21 verses. He tells the entire story of redemption in this parable of the prodigal son. But Jesus is telling the story of the prodigal son, not to just summarize the gospel. That's what Jesus does, did every day when he was here on earth. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God, that he was here to save sinners. What he's doing with this parable is he's confronting people with the reality of the gospel. Jesus' intention in this parable is to confront his audience with the gospel to see how they would react to the gospel. I'm going to say that again. Jesus, this, Jesus teaches the story specifically to confront his audience with the gospel to see how they would react to the gospel. And that is what I would like us to do tonight, to do a sort of self-check. Tonight, I want us, I want to ask you, and I will hope you answer honestly, how do you respond when you are confronted with the joy of the good news of heaven? How do you respond when you're confronted with the fact that Jesus saves sinners. And to help you sort of get a baseline to maybe evaluate yourself, where you are, how you respond to this, I want you to think about next Thursday. What's next Thursday? Thanksgiving. All right. It's literally a holiday devoted to giving thanks. How are you going to express your thanks on Thanksgiving? For a lot of us, it might be that it's just you're happy you have a day off work. You're happy that uh, you get to hang out with friends and family and fellowship. But there's no thanks. There's no joy that you, are, you have been saved, that you're a Christian, that you get to, to have fellowship. For others of us, there might be some thanks. There might be some thanksgiving that God has provided abundantly for you this year, that it's been a good year and that, that God is, is good to you and takes care of you. But even in that, how much of your thanks is just me, me, me? How much of your thanks is just because God's been doing good stuff to you? And if it had been a bad year, you might not be as thankful. How many of you plan on being thankful simply because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. If you're not overwhelmed with joy because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you might be spiritually frozen or at least spiritually cold. And if you're completely frozen, if you're completely numb and apathetic to the word of God, that's a problem. That's a very serious problem, a problem that you might even need to think, are you a Christian? And if you're walking around cold, maybe you're not not frozen. Maybe you do have some joy, but you're just cold and and don't really care. Well, that's a problem too, because you're going to walk around and you're going to fellowship with other Christians and you're going to grumble and you're going to complain and you're going to be upset. 
This story is Jesus's way of confronting your apathy and self-centeredness. He challenges you to look past yourself and come celebrate who he is and what he has done. Let's jump into the story. If you notice, when I read the passage, we started at verse 1 and verse 2. That was intentional. The best or the most practical tip for Bible study that I can give you is that when you're reading your Bible, read your Bible in context. Always be asking, what did I just read before the passage of Scripture that I read? And then how does what just was said affect what I'm reading now? In our case, in chapter 15, our text is 11 through 32, Luke 15, 11 through 32. But what comes before that is two smaller parables of Jesus. And those parables are directly related to the parable of the prodigal son. And right before those parables, Luke sort of give us, gives us some background information about what's happening. In Luke 1 and 2, we read, now all the tax collectors and sinners, all right, stop there, tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And then there, and then both the Pharisees and the scribes, second group, Pharisees and scribes were grumbling saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then it goes on and he starts the parables. But there's three groups listed here. The first group is Jesus and his disciples. Jesus, God, the son incarnate, the Messiah, the long awaited ruler, who according to Genesis 3.15 would crush the serpent's head and restore righteousness, would restore the universe back to its rightful place. Then there's a second group here. Where's the second group? You find them in verse one, tax collectors and sinners. This is the most broad way of saying that Jesus was eating with the undesirable, the most debauched people in Jewish life, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were literally people who sold their soul for money. They sold their soul. They abandoned their family. They abandoned their Jewish religion and they abandoned God themselves to become a tax collector, someone who collected money for Rome. Rome is the occupying territory. Rome is the people, Rome is pagan. Rome doesn't worship Yahweh. They worship false gods, a pantheon of false gods. And tax collectors would literally chose, instead of worshiping Yahweh, we're going to worship or we're just going to collect money. We're going to get rich off the Romans. And they're not just getting rich working with the Romans. They're getting rich taking money from their own brothers, from their Jewish brothers. And not just a fair amount of money, not just the taxes that kept society going. They would take extra taxes to line their own pockets and to line Rome's pockets. Sinners is everything from thieves and prostitutes to just other people off the street who were undesirable and, and, and lived seedy lifestyles. And these are the people Jesus is eating with. And it doesn't bode well for a certain group of people. If you've read the gospels, then you know who this group is, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the third group here. The last group, the scribes and the Pharisees were the spiritual leaders 
of Israel. They were the top brass. They were the ones that you wanted to be. They were supposedly, in their minds, the best of the best when it came to worshiping Yahweh. They lived off of a dichotomy. Things were either clean, holy, sanctified, or unclean, filthy, polluted, disgusting. And once something became polluted, whether that was a thing or that was a person, there was very little redemption possible. If you were unclean, you were out. And the tax collectors and the sinners were unclean. And yet, Jesus is eating with them. And so how can this man who's claiming to be the Messiah sit down and have a meal with sinners? This makes no sense. He's guilty by association. No way in their legalistic, pharisaical mind could the Messiah eat with sinners. He would, he, the Messiah, when he comes in their mind, would surely eat with the Pharisees and rebuke the sinners, reward those who have been keeping the law and punish those who have abandoned society to serve other gods. And so, they started grumbling. Now, why does this matter for our text? Jesus is going to tell two short stories, and then he's going to tell this long story about the prodigal son. It's not just random people, or it's not just generic or abstract. When Jesus is talking about the prodigal son, he's talking about the tax collectors and sinners. When he's talking about the older brother, he's specifically referring to the Pharisees and the scribes. So just to fill out the context, we see two parables before we get to the prodigal son. Why does he give two short parables? He's telling stories in, in threes, and the third story is designed to be the knockout punch. That's our story. But the two stories before them have a pattern. They have, have four things that happen, and that actually tra- corresponds to our parable. In the first parable, someone loses a sheep, so something gets lost. Verse 4, what man among you, if he has 100 sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open pasture and go after the one which is lost and find it? So we have a shepherd who's lost a sheep. In the next story, we have a woman who has lost a very expensive coin, has lost a lot of money. Uh, And that's verse eight. So people lose things. Then people find things. That's the second thing that happened. For the shepherd, it's verse five. Uh, He finds the sheep. And for the woman, she sweeps her house and she finds the money that she's lost. That's the second thing. Something is lost. Something is found. The third thing that happens is there's great rejoicing. When that sheep is found, the shepherd and all the other shepherds throw a party. When the coin is found, the woman and all her friends throw a party. There's great rejoicing because what was lost was very valuable and was found. And then for these first two stories, Jesus gives the moral of the story. He explains exactly what he's saying. Verse 7, referring to the shepherd and the sheep. He says, the shepherd finds the sheep and he celebrates. And in verse 7, he says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need for repentance. 
Just as people celebrate finding small things, when sinners, people alienated from God, are reconciled to God, there is a cosmic celebration in heaven. The angels rejoice. That's verse 10. God himself rejoices. God sanctions cosmic celebration when people repent and are found, when lost sinners come back. And so that explains why Jesus is telling the, or why Jesus is eating with sinners. Because if Jesus is willing to sit and eat with tax collectors and sinners and, and celebrate here on earth, if it's happening in heaven, it might as well happen on earth. But then he goes one step further and he tells our story. And he gives the same layout as he does before with the other stories, but he goes into way more detail. The other stories have six verses and four verses. This one is 21 verses because he wants to make sure it gets into their mind. He wants to make sure that they are confronted with the reality of the situation. So something is lost. The son is lost. The son is found. And then there's celebration. But remember that little moral. That will come up at the end of our message. The moral of the stories were that, that they, just as there is rejo- there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, that that happens. Keep that in mind. Write it down maybe because we're going to come back to that a little bit. But then he tells the story and let's just dive right in. What is lost? The, the youngest son is lost. Verse 11 and 12 reads. And then he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. This would have been to a Jewish audience shocking. There's actually uh, laws and, and Jewish customs that you can read that instruct fathers, if this request comes up, to to say no to this request. And they give Details of what happens to children that ask for their inheritance early. It would have been repulsive. It would have been shocking. It would have been upsetting. And this would not have been. It would have also been shocking that the father granted the request. A Jewish audience reading this would have, their, their jaw would have been open because they would, they would be shocked that this request even was made and that the father said yes to this request. In verse 13, um, then, yeah, in verse 13, the, the son says, and not many, well, this is what the son does. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and he went on a journey. Now, just to be clear, this son was not some entrepreneur. He didn't have some good aim. He didn't say, Father, give me my inheritance. What will be mine? And I will work it for a long time and I will, will, Take care of everything that's yours, but will one day be mine and I will grow it. No, that's not what he has in mind. He liquidates everything. He gets everything liquidated. He turns it into cash. He probably would have lost money, actually. It probably was worth more, but to get it into cash and to get it into cash, not many days later, he sells everything. He went into a journey into a distant country. The idea is he went as far away as possible. What he was saying basically is, dad, you're dead to me. Give me what I want and I'm gone. He's completely severed all ties to his family. He's gone away 
and he's gone into a distant country. He's basically saying, do you you see the selfishness here? He's basically saying, you're dead to me, dad. I'm gone. I got to get out of here. I got to go as far away as possible. My happiness is dependent on me getting out of Dodge. I need to be somewhere else. I could be, I can't wait for you to die for me to live my best life. I have to go away now. Says, and there he squandered his estate living recklessly. The, The idea is he literally scattered his money. He scattered it around. He scattered it every which way. He, a few thousand dollars here, a few thousand dollars there, a few thousand dollars on this party until one day there's barely any left, but he's just got to get one more, one more of whatever, fill in the blank. But he scattered his money across that land till he had nothing left. The story is called the story of the prodigal son, but I think it's really better to consider this son as the hedonistic son. Uh, a hedonist is someone who is wholly bent to live for themselves, to live for their pleasure. The son is self-indulgent. He's a glutton for his lust. He's giving full vent to every sin. And he's, he spends all his money living recklessly. The thing about it is, when you spend all your money, that's when the Lord and providence seems to start turning things around. You might be able to, when you have money, control situations and do things. But when you have no money, you are completely like a leaf tossed in the wind. Whatever happens, happens. Whatever, wherever you go, wherever you end up, you go. Just a, a side note quick, but what's the difference between a lost sheep, a lost coin, but a, a lost human being? A lost sheep is an animal. It wanders places. A lost coin is an object. It falls, it gets lost. A human being, when we sin, when we get lost from God, we willfully sin. We willfully go into sin. Never blame others for your sin. You get yourself into all sorts of sinning, into all sorts of situations where you sin. When you sin, you're basically, instead of looking to God, looking at what is good, what is beautiful, what is lovely, you're looking at some other object and it's shiny and it's dazzling and you think it's going to be a gold mine and you run up to it and you grab it, you Go, go up to it, no matter how hard it is to get, and you grab it and you realize it's not gold, it's coal. And now you're far away from where you should be, and your hands are dirty. That's what sin does, and it's a willful act. It's a willful act on us. It's never anyone else's fault when you sin. As I said, It doesn't end well for him. He's wasted all his money. And now a severe famine occurs in the land. People have tried to guess a famine, but this is a fictional story that Jesus made up. So it's just, it's any famine. Just picture the worst famine imaginable. And there you go. Verse 14 through 16 reads, um, now when he had spent everything, the famine occurred and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one 
was giving him anything. Nature always is unfavorable at the most inopportune times. He's realizing he's not the captain of his own fate anymore. Notice in verse 16 that all he could eat was the pig's food. The idea is he went to a farmer and it says he hired himself out. That's a very nice, clean way of saying he literally like hugged the man. He like grabbed him. And the the guy, the idea is probably the guy was trying to get away from him. So he gave him a job feeding the pigs just to get him out of his presence. Once again, though, think about this. This is a Jewish audience. The pig is the most, the, the most unclean animal to ever lived with. He now lives with pigs. He ate with pigs. He himself had basically become an unclean pig. This was rock bottom. He was far away as one Jew could be from God. He was the embodiment of uncleanness. And you can hear the Pharisees thinking, unclean, unclean. They probably enjoy this part of it. He got his just desserts. He wanted to leave and he got exactly what he did. He became unclean. He became the most unclean object. That's what sin does to people. It brings you to your knees. And that at a time when it's most unfavorable, you become the very thing you thought you would go after and get. He's at rock bottom. But this isn't really a story about what happens when sin takes you to your lowest. This is a story about what God does to sinners. And so we go on. He's lost, but he's about to be found. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. He finally took his eyes off himself and off his sin, and he started to think back to home. He started to think back to his father's generosity. I love that the text said he came to himself. He just basically, he sobered up. He started thinking again. And he started thinking, man, my father is so generous that even though I've done all this evil against him, even though there is so much bad I've done and I've become so unclean, maybe I could just be one of his hired servants. He's so generous that maybe he'll just give me a lowly job working for him and he'll give me some bread to eat. That way I'm no longer living with pigs. When we start to sober up, when we start to think again after being lost in sin, our thoughts aren't, how are we going to, how is everything going to be okay again? Our thoughts are, can I just survive this? Lord, can you just get me through this? And that's what he's experiencing here. Verse 18 is a beautiful prayer. It's not a prayer, but write this down. You you can pray this prayer when you sin, when you sin and you know you need to repent against God. He says, he's planning in his mind how he's going to talk to his father. He says, I will rise up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. He realizes that his sin is ultimately against heaven. 
His sin is ultimately against God. All sin is against God. That's why David cries out after his great sin of adultery, Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Because sin is against heaven, but it's before other people's people. You sin against others. You sin against those around you. You commit acts that degrade other humans. You, you sin against other hum, you sin against God, but it's through the agency of other humans often. And when you repent, you need to think, Father, I've sinned against you. No matter what the sin is, no matter how small or how great, all sin is against God. Keep that in mind. And so he rehearses that. And then he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make as me one of your hired men. He realizes that even though he has to go through shame and ridicule, reuniting with his father is better than staying where he is. Just to get a sight, just to get a taste of heaven's joys, if it were be, to, to get a taste of his father's presence. Even being a hired hand in heaven is worth more than living an eternity in hell. Now, I do want to just point out here, today in the church, and more and more, you're going to be hearing about people that have very sinful lifestyles, wanting to both be a Christian and wanting to be whatever that lifestyle is, fill in the blank. You can be part of the LGBTQ movement. You can be any, anything over here, but I can also be a Christian. And maybe you'll run into them at a church. Let's pray never this church. Maybe you'll run into them in the workplace where someone is living that lifestyle and they're saying, oh no, I'm a Christian too. They're not just like, yeah, you, you can be your Christian and I'm going to be my lifestyle. They want to say they're a Christian, but they don't want to live like a Christian. And then they're going to go and one of the arguments they're going to make is they're going to say Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And when they say that to you, you say, yes, he did. Let's open up the Bible and see what he's talking about. And you take them to the story and you show them that he didn't eat with tax collectors and sinners just because he affirmed their lifestyle. He affirmed who they are. He ate with tax collectors and sinners because the tax collectors and the sinners realized they were far from the kingdom of God and they repented and they believed. And now they were celebrating that they were lost and they were found. There is no mixing of what is Christ's and what is of the world's and thinking everything will be fine. There is repentance for all people. And it's after that repentance that we welcome all people who have repented and believed into the family of God. Let's continue on verses 20 and 21. The son dusts himself dusts himself off. And here we see what is perhaps the most staggering part of the entire story. So he rose, verse 20, so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
In verse 21, and the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, you see the picture. It's beautiful. The father runs and embraces the son. Rich Middle Eastern men do not run. And the the audience here would know that. They would be appalled by the father's actions. The father would have been expected to not talk to his son, probably for five or six days, let him stew, let him think about his sins, let the whole town know that, oh, my son who abandoned me, now he's come back to me, the nerve. And then after that time period, maybe they would have a conversation and maybe there would be some sort of system put in place where the son could work and labor and toil for the father. But all that goes out the window in one verse. The father runs to the son. He runs to him and he embraces him. This is mercy. This is what we call mercy displayed. Mercy has been defined. I got the definition, so I'm just going to read it to you. Mercy has been defined as not getting the evil that you deserve. Mercy is not getting evil you deserve. Instead of the evil that son deserved, the father ran to him and embraced him. He didn't get evil. He got love in his place. And this, that is magnified to the to infinite proportions with God. When God shows mercy, this is what we're talking about. He doesn't give you the evil that you deserve. And if you're being honest with yourself, how often do you receive God's mercy? Every day, every breath that you live, you've received God's mercy to some degree. And if you're saved here tonight, you've received God's mercy to a million times what you could ask or think. Mercy really is something our culture doesn't understand. We cancel people. We don't show them mercy at all. We, we get them away and they live in a perpetual state of uncleanness like the Pharisees. But have you ever meditated on God's mercy? Have you ever just thought and pondered how often you personally have been forgiven by God and the mercy God shows you every day? I guarantee you that no matter how hard your life gets, if you meditate on God's mercy, every day will be better. Every day will be slightly better. And the story only gets better from here. Verses, um, verses 22 through 24, we move into the celebration. So remember the structure? We have something's lost, something's found, and then something. when something is found, something is celebrated. Uh, the son offers to, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In verse 22, but the father said to his slave, quickly, hurriedly, fast, don't waste any time. Go get the royal, or go get, get, my clothes, get, uh, get, get the best robe. The idea is the best robe. My robe, the father's robe is the best robe. Put that on him and put a ring on his hand, a signet ring, the family signet ring, put that on his hand. He can, he can act as a member of the family. He can make decisions as the family. 
and sandals on his feet. This is very interesting. It's, it's probably only interesting to me, so I won't belabor the point, but sandals were a, were a luxury item back then, sort of gives you a picture into the culture. Only rich families really had sandals or just an extra pair of sandals lying around to put on his feet. So, I mean, this kid went from being with the pigs to being fully restored. He has his father's clothes on. He has the ring on his finger that allows him to make decisions as a member of the family. And he has sandals on his feet so he can walk about. These items were the items of restoration. He wasn't just going to be a servant. He was fully restored to the role of a son. And it also says that they got the fattened calf. A fattened calf could feed about 200 people. This is a celebration. This is the whole village has come now to witness this. The father wants everyone to know that the son who was lost, the son that embarrassed him, that humiliated him, is mine, is back. That he's back and he's restored. And this is the ultimate celebration. It's verse 23, bring the the fatted calf and let us eat and let us celebrate. Now listen to verse 24. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He, has, he was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now, that is a key word to get you to think, all right, we've had something lost, we've had something found, and now we have celebration. In the first two stories, Jesus ends it here. It's done. We're going to get the line in the same way there's great joy in heaven when one of these people, when, when, when a one sinner returns. But if you look at the page, is that what happens? Does verse 25 read, now there's joy in heaven because one sinner? No, we're introduced to the older son at this point. Now the older son was in the field. And when he came and he approached the house and he heard music and dancing, this older son approaches. First observe, he's been completely absent, completely absent and apathetic in the story at this point. He didn't confront his father. He didn't comfort his father when his, son, when his brother ran away. He didn't go to that distant land and try to get his brother back. He's been completely apathetic. He doesn't care. Yeah, my brother did what he did. My father's sad. That's cool. I'm just going to do what I'm here to do. I get the rest of the inheritance. I get the double portion. He didn't do anything for his family. He's just been completely apathetic in the story. A cool apathy. A name at the beginning of the story and nothing else. We see apathetic Christians today, though, don't we? All the time. They leave the worship service early to get to their fellowship group to get the best chairs. They leave church early. They're rushing out of here. They run up, get a donut, and don't even say hi to you who have graciously volunteered to serve them their donut. Apathy is everywhere. They don't care about others in the church. They're just focused on themselves and what they're doing. And if there's a nursery sign up today and you don't sign up, are you apathetic? (laughs) I will let your conscience uh, respond. Verse 27 and 28 reads, and he said to him, your brother has come. A servant is talking to the older brother. Why? The older brother's like, why in the world is there celebration here? 
Uh, And they said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry. (laughs) He was not wanting to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. How does the older brother finally react? There's great joy. The family's been restored. The father's been mourning the death, basically, of his son. (laughs) And when there's celebration that the son's returned, he doesn't experience joy. He experiences anger. He becomes angry. And he literally becomes so angry that he can't even go inside and see anybody. He has to stay outside. In a sense, he himself has lost his family. He's detached himself from the family. The family's in there celebrating, but he's so upset he's outside. And the father has to go in and start pleading with the older brother. He doesn't care about the joy of the salvation of the younger brother. He doesn't care that what has been lost has been found. He's not happy that the family has been restored, that another one has has, that his brother has been found. Instead, he gets mad. Verse 29 through 30 shows this truth. Verse 29, he answered and said to the father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. And I've never neglected a command of yours. It's literally the word is for, for so many years, I've been slaving for you. I've been working so hard for you. And I haven't neglected one of your commands. You have a lot of rules, a lot of things you expect to go well. And I've kept every single command. The Pharisees would have realized at this point, he's talking about them. Because they didn't care about God, but they did care about God's commands. They cared about his law so much that they made their own law that fenced in the actual law so that if they didn't keep their own made up law, at least it wouldn't cause them to ultimately sin. But then eventually the made up law became the actual law. And now they could really be righteous if they kept the made up law because they were in their minds spotless, but they didn't care about God. They didn't care about worshiping God. They cared about the rules. They cared about what they were doing. They were the older brother. They got angry when Jesus came and offered salvation to tax collectors and sinners. Verse 29 continues, you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends, verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him, if the younger brother is the hedonist, the older is a legalist. He thinks that if he can just outlive his father, all the pleasures that his brother hastily took will be his eventually. He's so focused on the fattened calf. He's so focused on the celebration and that the celebration isn't for him. He doesn't care about his brother. He doesn't care about the joy that is happening, that the reality, that how merciful his father is. He All he cares about is himself and celebrating Notice, 
He's just where his brother is at the beginning of the story. But instead of going to a distant land, he just stayed and he thought, I'll outlive my father. He wants that same party lifestyle. He just gets it in a different way. He's willing to keep commands and then thinks that one day God will bless him. But God doesn't just want obedience. He wants fellowship. He wants joy filled with energetic praise. He wants passionate worship. He's not going to reward you if you just coldly do the check the boxes. He's not going to reward you if you're not praying with him, but you don't sin. No, there's it's relationship. He wants that relationship. And he get. I mean, that's the whole point of Christianity. I mean, one of the the greatest theological questions that people used to memorize is what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man through studying the scriptures is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Your chief end isn't just to check some boxes and go to heaven. You you exist to bring glory to God and then to enjoy God forever. And we've already noted the older brother stays outside. He won't even go in. The older brother is so upset about the thought of forgiveness and others being in the kingdom and others getting what should be his that he decides he doesn't want to even be in the kingdom anymore. He'd rather stay outside and brood. And so the father says to him in verse 31, child, you're always with me. You're always here. All that is mine is yours, but we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and is alive, has been lost and has been found. He's repeating what was said earlier. The story ends there. It's rather an abrupt ending, especially if you look at it in in the Greek, it kind of just ends and you're like, well, there's no more. There's no resolution to the story. Why do you think there's no resolution to the story? Because Jesus is using this story to confront the older brother, the Pharisee, with an option. Look, I am welcoming sinners into the kingdom. Those who have been lost have been found. I will save them. I will redeem them. I will assuage my wrath. I will put it away. Hey, I will do what needs to be done to save sinners. Now, the Pharisees, they don't realize this, but they're just as lost. They're just as sinners as, as the younger brother. But, but they think they're perfect. They think they've kept all the law. And Jesus is saying, look, basically, we're celebrating right now. Come celebrate with us. Come sit down at the table. Jesus often eats with Pharisees as well. And they get mad because non-Pharisees come and do stuff with them. It's, Jesus is saying here, the kingdom is come. My joy is come Let's be joyous. Let's rejoice. I am the Messiah. Let's all rejoice together. What happened to the Pharisees? If you've read the Gospels, did the Pharisees accept the offer of Jesus? Did they say, you're right. Thank you for, the jo- for this. Let's rejoice together. Did they repent? No, they, they kill Christ. That's how the story ends. It ends in the gospel, at the end of the gospel. They kill Christ. They execute him. They work with Rome to have him put to death. And if, if you were here last time I, I preached, we talked about the great irony in that, that that's exactly what had to happen for sinners to be saved. 
Because Christ, God forgives you because Christ took every guilty thing that every sinner has ever done on his body on Calvary. And in those few hours, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. All of your sins, all of your guilt, every time you go to a distant land and indulge your sin, every time you think you're better than other Christians and you're just coldly living your life, all of that was poured out on Jesus. And as his blood dripped from the cross, God no longer saw you as a filthy person, but he saw Christ's righteousness on you. He saw that your sins were forgiven and he welcomes you into his kingdom from that. So just by means of conclusion, I just want to ask you, how do you respond to that message? How do you respond in the sense of how does your heart respond? What do you, what is your experience of that message? Do you rejoice? Are you thinking that, yeah, I know the gospel and yeah, that's great, but I'm just going to quietly simply obey and be righteous and I'll just do a good job and, and that will be fine enough. I don't necessarily have to worship God. Friend, there is no amount of just good deeds you can do that will get you into a, a state of righteousness before God. That's why Christ had to die for you. If you're trying to work your way into the kingdom as the older brother did, you'll never make it. That's a bill of goods, a check, a blank check that will sadly bounce. I see four things in the story, four ways that you could be right now relating to God. And you just answer these, think about them, maybe share them with your table when you discuss, but Right now, God is in heaven. God is unchangeable. God, heaven is rejoicing when sinners repent. And you could be personally in a far off land. You could be far from God and be happy with it, living your life. But one day, a famine will come to that land. The question is, what will happen then? You could be on the verge of repentance, walking home, you could be thinking, I should repent, but there could be something holding you back from repenting. Maybe you don't think the Father is gracious. Maybe you don't think God will actually forgive you of your sins. Maybe you think if you just improve your life a little bit first before you come to God, then things will be all right. Or you could be like the older brother. You could be very close to God. You could be very close to the people of God, but you could be cold, apathetic, living out your own righteousness. Or, and I hope this is you, I hope this is all of us, and to some extent we need to be more of this, you could be running into the Father's arms, praising Him and enjoying Him for who He is, a God slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and what He has done, which is take away the sins of His people. He's washed you. He's, he's cleansed you. If you're not in that last category today, I beg you to think about why you're not there and how you can enjoy God and respond with joy and rejoicing to the gospel message. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for saving sinners. Thank you so much for who you are, what you've done, 
that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, that you made him who knew no sin to be sin on your, on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of him. Lord, help us today to rejoice. Help us as we, we discuss to be honest, to be open. Help us as we go about our lives to, to be filled with songs and hymns and spiritual songs and make melody in our heart to you and to be ever more joyful of the fact that you forgive sinners. Jesus, thank you for dying. Amen.